You know, I did a pick recently. Did you? I did. What was it? Four Roses. I was supposed to be there, but my daughter was sick. I know. I was supposed to have you in the car next to me. I, then I could have slept. You could have drove. I, I would have felt much safer <laughs> driving myself. I didn't have you drive. So, you know, it was unique, though. We get in there, and you, we go through the seven barrels, and everybody's taking time, taking their notes, whatever, and we go to rank them on the board. Literally, almost everybody had the same barrel for one, except for this guy. After the reveal, it was an OBSO, which... I had those on picks and got a few of them. I think there's even one here with us, and I like them. And I was like, man, was I off that bad that day, or what was going on? So I've come to the simple conclusion, I think. OBSO was like the girl you dated that everyone told you was perfect, but she just never did that thing that locked you in. As perfect as she was, never had those wow intangibles that made you say, this is the one. everyone my name is john edwards with me is zeke baker and together we make the dad's drinking bourbon wherever you are whatever time it is thank you for making us a part of your day say hello to the folks zeke howdy 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 just two just two yep no cab it is a very 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 special day on dad's tricky bourbon this is one that we've talked about doing for about two years with this person in the same room with him we've talked about how we need to get together and sit down and do a podcast over and over and over and we haven't got it done we eventually got it done dan gardner from four roses thank you so much for joining us my pleasure i'm glad to be here i thank you for breaking in our new temporary studio as, as some of you might know i am building a house so i live in an apartment complex right now me and my wife my three-year-old daughter and we are in this meeting room overlooking the pool. Not a bad place to be, though, Zeke, right? I'm surprised you really want to put us in the gym where you could do some sets in between. Well, I, I already hit the gym today. Oh. <laughs> I hit the gym and the pool already. It's resort life for me for the summer. <laughs> Just but, don't get that, uh, that dome sunburnt. I think I kind of did already. It was a little bit red. Oh, that'll be a fun day. Well, my, my daughter wants to go to the pool every damn night. That's the problem is she comes home and she goes, I had a good day at school, Dad. Can I go to the pool? <laughs> it ought to be a good thing. It'll wear out. It doesn't. It gives her more energy. I swear. Oh, so, Dan, how are you doing? What brings you down here to Nashville tonight? Uh, just driving through. I was just doing some surveys, pricing surveys here uh, in Tennessee. I was in knoxville and chattanooga last week i was nashville and memphis so i was just driving back from memphis today it's always a pleasure to have you for those of you that that don't know you you are renaissance man at four roses <laughs> you do a little bit of everything some people might see you on barrel picks some people might see you out in the field some people might see you at whiskey events slinging al young from a table or four roses 130 at a table or the new limited edition small batch select i mean you're the man that a lot of people see out in the field 
in front, but now you're doing some more stuff back at home. Tell everybody a little bit of your story and, and what you're actually doing at Four Roses right now. Okay. Well, I got into the industry in 1980, been doing it a while. Actually was the wine manager for the old Kentucky Wine and Spirits in Louisville, Kentucky. But uh, I saw early on where the money was, so I f <laughs> <laughs> to be quite honest, I love wine, but I can find a lot of stuff under $10. It suits me just well, just fine. Uh, so I switched over to uh, the liquor side uh, after a couple of years and always paid attention to everything. So again, back then, you know, the bourbon industry was dying a slow death and it didn't level off until the mid 80s so anyway i, I knocked around and you know, i was state sales manager for the company after i uh, starting about mid 80s i managed the launch of the small batch collection in the early 90s when booker no was still around we were the van winkle distributor so i've known julian forever. I know the Getz family. I worked with Randy Getz, who is his grandfather. Oscar Getz revived the Tom Moore distillery and, and that group of investors after Prohibition. Uh, worked with Jimmy and Eddie Russell for 28 years. I never can get into the Getz Museum, though. That's, you know, is it always is it closed? Every time I go to Bardstown and I try to go by it, it's always closed. Uh, I, I don't know what's going on with it. I have no idea. But, but, you know, they, they, they long history. Uh, Randy's still a good friend of mine. He's not in the industry anymore. So uh, started to work for Southern Wine and Spirits in the er 2002. I was the brand manager for Four Roses starting in 2004 with the launch of the single barrel, which has really started the renaissance of the brand. We were selling, I don't know, eight or nine cases a month, maybe of the yellow label, the 80 proof early on. But the single barrel is really what we established the, the brand on in Kentucky, for sure. And went to work for them in 2009. So it'll be 10 years for me at Four Roses, uh, October 1st. Well, well, I hope they're having a party. Do you get Don't a hold watch? your breath? <laughs> <laughs> I've got a watch, but I paid for it myself. <laughs> they they got to give you one of those with like laser etching of four roses on the back or something like that. You know, there, there's something they got to do for it. <laughs> but I think for those of us that kind of go to a lot of different whiskey things and, and are connected in some way, shape, or form, however it be, even if we're just a wee little podcast. I mean, Dan is probably the one who is most synonymous with Four Roses to the everyman. You know, Dan is the first person we think of when, when something's going on at Four Roses. He's the one we call. He's the one we bug with questions. Uh, <laughs> he, and, and he's the one that a lot of people see. But I, I don't think people all the way no i mean one of the things i would say about dan and, and i know i'm saying things that he wouldn't say himself zeke but dan is one of those last people that has those stories that go all the way back to julia van winkle to booker to you know jimmy to i remember i distinctly remember you telling me a story once uh -oh. and it was really funny <laughs> it was y'all were sitting at something and, and you were sitting next to jimmy oh and i, uh, I know yeah. Somebody was saying something about Tennessee whiskey, and Jimmy kind of leans over to you and whispers in your ear. He's like, 
if they made it right the first time, they wouldn't have to filter it through charcoal. <laughs> that was in the late 90s. You know, the industry was coming back, and the, the Wholesale Association had invited all of the bourbon distillers in for this big luncheon. So I was, I was sitting beside Jimmy, and I really don't know why the guy from Brown Forum was talking about Tennessee whiskey, but but he was, and you know, they, they go through the entire thing. We all we use corn and we use rye and all this stuff. And then after we distill it, we slow filter through eight feet of maple charcoal to mellow it out. And I got him sitting next to Jimmy, and he just kind of elbows me in the ribs and said, yeah, if they distilled it right the first time, they wouldn't have to do that so much. <laughs> And just one of the dear gentlemen and true gentlemen in the industry, Jimmy Russell, and just think the world of him. Absolutely. Is that one of those things, though, that you're sick of hearing the debate on? Because everybody wants to say, is Tennessee whiskey bourbon? Or, and I don't even want to go there and have. But is it just annoying to you at this point? Well, you know, you know, they've they've made their own. I've read some things about that. You know, they wanted to maintain a separate identity. But the thing that people have a tendency to overlook is that there are three levels of, of bourbon, okay? So you distill, you have distillate. The second you put it in a barrel, it becomes bourbon. It's aged three minutes, it's bourbon. But to be called straight bourbon, it's gotta be aged a minimum of two years. Again, all the requisite aged in a new charred oak barrel. But with, with straight bourbon, you can't add any coloring or flavoring to it. And then, of course, there's bonded bourbon. It's got to be the distillate of one distilling season, bottled at no less than 100 proof. It's got to be the distillate of one distillery. So you've got three quality levels there. So technically, Tennessee whiskey, from my understanding of the law... <clears throat> qualifies to be called bourbon because it's 51% corn. It's aged in a new charred oak barrel. That's pretty much the standard for to be called bourbon. You know, I just kind of go, and, and not to cut you make off any on yet. this, but I mean, if you think about Heaven Hill, Evan Williams, there are plenty of quote-unquote bourbons that charcoal filter. Well, but the difference is maple charcoal versus oak oh are you talking about adding a flavoring then well with the maple? It, technically if you read the if you read the federal regulations the charcoal the maple charcoal the lincoln county process is subtractive as opposed to additive supposedly i don't know i pick up a piece of charcoal and i put it in my mouth i can taste a lot of stuff going on there <laughs> funny so, enough <clears throat> there was zeke once made me drink this black box whiskey and it was a boxed whiskey like you would have oh, a yeah. boxed wine yeah to me, it tastes like I took a piece of charcoal and put it in my mouth. Well, here's the thing. Uh, Y'all are familiar with Clayton James. Yes, sir. Ten South. Mm -hmm. Clay puts that whiskey. He does a Lincoln County process, but it's, it's forced. You know, it's under pressure. So that goes in clear. When it comes out, there's a hint of color to it. To me, that's something's been added to that. In my mind. So you're going to get, I don't think there's any way you cannot, 
there's not some bits of charcoal that have ended up in that, but I might be wrong, but, I, but I've seen the process. And it's, it's a little tinge of color, almost like, uh, <clears throat> you know, Seagram's gin is barrel aged. And if you get a bottle of Seagram's gin and hold it up next to something else, Seagram's gin's got a touch of mm-hmm. color to it. So it's kind of like that. But that's the, that's the big debate. To be straight bourbon whiskey, you can't add any coloring or flavoring to it. Bottom line on it is, is Tennessee whiskey, they want their own identity. Even if they could, they wouldn't. And again, y'all are seeing Tennessee bourbon labels pop up. Of course, that's sourced from a distillery here in Tennessee. So it, it can be called bourbon. It can't be called straight bourbon. I will just point of clarification, though. H. Clark Distillery uses Tennessee bourbon, and they distill their own stuff. Just a, a fun fact. They don't do the Lincoln County process. Nope. It is Tennessee bourbon. He actually has a brandy still, and he distills his bourbon in that. He has a great rye, but he has a bottled and bond bourbon now, too. That yeah. They're, they're doing great things down there in Thompson Station. Uh, so The thing that bewildered me from picking down there and then doing the tour is it shows that little drip method going through the, you know, how many are feet of the coal. I mean, if Jack Daniels is you know, roughly the largest producer. And I mean, you see a drop, drop. Yeah. Well, I mean, how many of those are going at one time and, and how does it all come out to yield that much juice? Cause I mean, it, it doesn't seem like that much would be produced at the end of the day. I, you know, I, I don't know enough about that, that process. I'm just putting him on the spot. No, I'm just saying like, if, if you look at it visually and you think, all right, these people sell more juice than anybody. And you see oh. this little thing go, all I have to say is that we have way too much whiskey on the table. <laughs> and we have been these these are the type of rabbit hole conversations we've had for the past hour before we've actually started recording. So I will just mention on the table right now, we have Thorny Nectar 3 from Barrels and Brews. We have the Huckleberry from 5280 Whiskey. We have the special K on the table. We have Buddy's Liquors. It's an L-E-O-E-S-V. That's pretty damn good. We have the 404 Kitchen Four Roses pick. We have Small Batch Select. We've had 130th. So we have been going through a lot of these different things. And uh, Well, we also have a, a non-Four Roses. I, I had to bring the uh, the Willet Tree Fitty bottle, which uh, our good friend Mike Hines is supposed to be joining later to, to talk about. He, he and Dan were, were part of the pick for that. How much was that bottle? You got to ask you. You don't know. I'll give you about tree fitted for it. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I'm going to say one thing about the Tennessee, can it be labeled bourbon? Uh, Chuck Cowdery uh, is has done an article on that, and he is certainly a believer and, and has put it forth that it can be labeled bourbon. The question is, in my mind, can it be labeled straight bourbon because of the process? But... Just a straight bourbon moniker. There's a lot more leeway in, 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 as far as the things you can can do with it. So, uh, and I freely admit that that that's my understanding of it. If somebody has got uh, more accurate information, I welcome it. So, <laughs> all I gotta say at the end of the day, who cares? Who cares? That's right. <clears throat> you know. So back to let's go back to a little four roses here and. I re-poured the, the new small batch select, which John and I reviewed recently. And 
he was a fan. Uh, I just said there's something about the back end that seems to have too much bite to it to me. Nose is very floral, but something about the back I couldn't get past. Dan and I were talking about this on the, the pick I did recently, and he had an interesting theory as to what exactly I was picking up in a, uh, the, I guess, the, the yeast strain or, or mash and why. So I think that might be interesting for folks to, to hear. Gosh, I'm trying to remember what the heck uh, the mash. There are four different recipes in this. I'm trying to. It old, says it right on there, doesn't yeah, it? There you go. Here, oh, you're cheech. talking about the, oh, yeah, sorry, the, the small batch select. Yeah, yeah, oh, okay. Sorry. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's a cheat sheet. They're right there for yeah, you. Yeah, th this I know. It has six different recipes in it, three different yeast strains, and it's uh, V, K, and F. And the F yeast strains are, there's mint to them. It's herbal. So it's much deeper, kind of darker flavor to it so to me it's all about the f yeast strain it is why this is you, you taste this next to regular small batch i mean it you'll never get them confused <clears throat> and it's all about that f yeast strain the f yeast strain to me is the most coating from front to back and one of the things i'll say is that i view the yeast strains there's an analogy to grape varieties to me and people ask me well, what, what do you mean well Cabernet is typically bigger, a little more tannic. Uh, if you want to soften it up, you, you add a little Merlot to it. Merlot typically is a lot fruitier. Then you want to go full Bordeaux blend, Petit Verdot, Cabernet Franc, Malbec. Well, our yeast strains are very similar in that the K and F's yeast strains are heavier yeast strains. Our O yeast strain is full fruit. That, In my mind, that's our Merlot. V is very similar. It's a lighter fruit. And then the, the QE strain is strictly for the floral note. Jim Rutledge always said that the QE strain ages quicker. Well, in my mind, the reason for that, it doesn't add any flavor to the whiskey. It allows the mash bill and the barrel to show through more. If you taste Q distillate next to O, they're completely different. O is at 130, 840 proof straight off the still. It's round, it's rich. <clears throat> Q's are a little more alcoholic. It, it, it just, there, it, there's just more bite to it. So uh, subsequently, the, the barrel's gonna show through quicker because there's not a layer of flavor that that yeast, that it's just not putting any flavor down in my mind. And again, I'm basing a lot of that on what Rutledge said, that the Q yeast strains age quicker. And to me, that's, uh, in my, experience with doing barrel selections, F yeast strains can carry higher alcohols and more wood, older aging, more wood aging, because you've got this intense flavor that's kind of laid over the top of the barrel and, and, the, and the alcohols. And, and K is very similar, but K hits me further in the back of my palate, and O is mid-palate, V is mid-palate, both of those have more mid-palate presence and there are shorter, cleaner finishes. And then Q, it just kind of depends on the barrel with Q. Q's either love them or I hate them. Yeah, you and Definitely. I were talking about that. I mean, I think we all, three of us, feel the same way about the Q, but you were saying that it's also barrel placement too, right? If you want me to get into this, I'll, I'll do, 
you know, traditional six-story warehouse will have a temperature variance of 40 degrees from the bottom floor to the top floor. Those barrels on the top floor are subjected to a lot more heat. The more heat they're under, the more the alcohol expands. The more the alcohol expands, the deeper it's going to drive into the barrel staves. But the key thing, both the alcohol and the water evaporate. Water molecule is shorter, has an easier time passing through the wood, so the water leaves on those barrels on the top floor. So to me, they get a double whammy of increased alcohols and, and, and more tannin, more wood. And then we're going to get into barrel variation after I get through with this. So it's, the thing you've got to understand is you come down the floors of the warehouse, it starts getting cooler, cooler, cooler. Well, there's a huge difference in the evaporation rate of water versus alcohol within a short temperature variance. So it goes from 120, say, down to 40 degrees. The evaporation rate of water has decreased dramatically, 32-degree freezing point. Alcohol, on the other hand, is somewhere around minus 200 degrees. So it goes down. It gets down to 40 degrees. The alcohol is still evaporating just as much as before. But now it's not having to fight the water to leave the barrel. That water is not evaporated or hasn't evaporated nearly as much. So the alcohol leaves. Alcohol content goes down. But the key thing is on the lower floors, it's not under as much heat. The alcohol is not expanded as much and, is not, and it doesn't drive as deep into the staves. So you get softer, gentler aging with those barrels on the lower floors. I had a guy challenge me once, <clears throat> well, it can't, it can't be that big a deal. So I asked him, I said, do you mow your yard? Well, yeah. <laughs> okay, you fill your mower up, screw those caps down on your gas can, you set that gas can down in, the, in your driveway. What happens when you go back and you got to fill your, put more gas in your mower? You twist that cap, psh, pressure builds up. Same thing within a barrel, in a barrel of bourbon. Alcohol's not quite as volatile as gasoline, but it ain't far from it. It will burn. So you get pressure builds up in those barrels. So in general, that's what happens. But then the wild card is the barrel. And I, and I greatly encourage everybody to go to Independent Stave. Those guys have given me so much information on barrels. It's, it's amazing. So the big difference in barrels <clears throat> is the grain it's how they quarter, they quarter saw a log. And I've got some diagrams. I'm not going to do us any good here. But <clears throat> as you saw the, the staves off that log, the grain changes. You know, it goes from an open grain to a tight grain. So when they put a barrel together, it's a combination of open grain staves, tight grain staves. So the question is, or in my example, let's just pretend we've got two barrels. One that's open grain staves. One that's all tight grain staves. So there are four levels of char. One, two, three, four. Four being an alligator char. And that's about a one-minute burn. And the question I always ask is, which, which barrel is going to burn deeper? A barrel that's got comp composed of tight grain staves or one that's open grain? To me, it's going to be the open grains, more porous. It's going to burn deeper. When you char a barrel, you're caramelizing the natural sugars in that wood. That's where the bourbon gets its color and, and, and that caramel flavor. It's where it picks up its sweetness. You're going to get variation with that. Now, most barrels are a combination of open and tight grain. You've, you've got to go by and see them 
put a barrel together. There's a big tub and guys are constantly coming by and putting more stays in. So these barrel makers are just picking them up. It looks like willy nilly putting these barrels together. It's really remarkable. So it's it's completely random act. So I'm sure they're so busy they don't they don't have time to look at it or, or categorize no, or anything. There's it's no there's go, no way, go, no go, way go, to go. do it <clears throat> anyway. Even if you wanted to, so so you get that variation with grain. Is it open grain stave or tight grain stave? But where did that tree come from? Did it come from uh, clay? You know, red clay hillside, very dry. Was it wet? So there are a lot of very variations and factors that go into the barrel variation. I love this conversation because it's like everything Zeke and I talk about constantly. <clears throat> keep keep going. Sorry. Well, if you and the thing they're going to do when they go to independent stave is they're going there's a fact sheet there, and one of the facts. And if you ask Jimmy Russell or Jim Rutledge or any of the, any of the distillers, they're going to tell you that the barrel makes up. 60 to 65 percent of the flavor of the bourbon now let's be honest what's the one thing that people never talk about when they're talking about a bourbon the barrel variation it's always about the mash bill and and with us it's about the yeast strain but 65 percent of the flavor of a, a bottle of bourbon is the barrel and it's never talked about that that never comes in everybody thinks that that's that's a a standard you know, that's a, a uniform deal, and it's not. And again, if you taste our OBSV 100-proof recipe barrel program, Mandy Vance has been doing a, a great job. And I love when we have sister barrels, and you're tasting the very, same distillate run from barrels that have been aging in the same rick, same tier. They've been aging side by side by side by side by side, and every one of them are different. And that really drives it home. With, with our 10 recipes, you expect differences, different, different mash bills, uh, different yeast strains. But when it's all, everything's being equal, those are the most fun to me to well, see those. That has to be one of the most frustrating things, I would think, for a distiller. And, and I know that's something that you don't do, but you've been around enough of them <clears> to know... When 65% of your flavor is coming from something that you don't have 100% control over, and you think about the, the distillers, the things that they have to keep in mind. So it could be you know, something that we were talking about before we even got in here. What's the temperature of your fermenter as it's going through? What's, how is everything cooling as you're going through? What is the, you know, how many times is it run, running through the distilling process? Are there two distills? Like, or is it being distilled twice? Is there a doubler? Where's the doubler kick in? Where, like, all these things that a distiller has to worry about. There's even more rabbit holes. How are you cooking your grain? Are you cooking the corn before you put everything else in? Are you letting, are you putting it all in together? What type of corn are you putting in? I mean, these are the... And then to know that you could go through and account for every single one of those details, but 65% of your flavor is going to come from something that the people over at Independent State or at Kelvin or at Brown Foreman's Cooperage or whatever it is, they just said, "Ah, I needed... I needed a certain amount of sticks. Here's here's the thing that Rutledge always said, and I and I learned more from from Jim 
it's incredible. Pass over that 350, by the way. I want to pour some of that for when Heinz gets here. (laughs) Rutledge always said that the key to it is putting the best distillate you can possibly make into the barrel. The barrel will only improve something so much. And the analogy I use is you can put A1 steak sauce on, on a bologna burger. It's not going to turn it into a T-bone. <laughs> yeah, so, but you put enough of it, it'll taste better. Well, it'll taste better. <laughs> and, and the barrel will, will make some crappy whiskey taste better. But potentially it's, it, that barrel can only take it so far. So you've got to have pristine distillate. And the key to it is putting the best distillate you can inside that barrel. And that's really the, the, where the, the, mas, the master distiller comes in, controlling all those factors that you mentioned and getting the best distillate you can in that barrel. So at the end of the day, bourbon is hard. It ain't well, easy. I, that's for well, I was just going to say, inversely, I think you've got to give credit to that barrel variation of the things. Otherwise, mm-hmm. we don't have these 10 picks sitting on the table right now. We have one uniform juice. What, what Four Roses really known well for? Blending. If they don't have different variations from different barrels to go in and tinker with, they can't create these wonderful products that we love to see roll out every year. The variations we can come up with are endless. It's not just five yeast strains, but it's how much of each yeast strain do we use. So, you know, you can you start thinking about it, you could come up with an endless number of different products just because of of the flavors we now we've how got to work with do you get in that not not to cut you off sorry but how involved do you get in that as there is the limited edition small batch every year there are special small batches that may come out i mean you've been there for a long time now 10 years is is a pretty long time and they also know that you have experience in the industry for a long time. So how do they how do they pull you in? Are uh, you are you just one of the QCers that, that, that does it taste good? When, no, when they when they finish it, they let me taste it. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I'll be honest with you. I've got I've, I do not have a good nose, and therefore that limits my palate. So everything that I do is strictly through my palate, and. I, I don't pick up the subtleties that, that really, really good tasters do, like Mandy Vance. Mandy, of course, runs our barrel program. They're, they're people that with just much better palates than me. And when you start blending, when you, I mean, I hate using that term. That blending is a nasty term in the bourbon industry. We like to say mingled or married. <laughs> I mean, if you think about it now... I'm not sure if blending has the same connotation, almost like source whiskey. I'm an I'm old man. (laughs) I'm old school. Generation swing of you know absolutely. There's that train of thought, like John said, source, and then also you know people that love an age statement. Whereas I think a lot of folks now, it's like I don't necessarily care what the age is. What it tastes like. No, we and we've proven that, and we're going to switch gears here a little bit with age is, uh, you know, we started doing our barrel selections uh, blind. More importantly, Dan, listen, we'll get to that, but your glass is empty. Oh, gosh, I know. I'm trying to figure out what I'm going to next. Uh, there's there's so much here. I, what haven't you had yet? Have you had that Buddies? Ooh, it's time for this one. 
<laughs> he, he said he would help the guys from London, Kentucky pick this uh, one. I was at this tasting. And, and uh, hasn't revisited since then. So Oh, you haven't? I, I, did, I did good on that one, John. I, good job. This, I try. Didn't even know it. <laughs> <laughs> this was... Uh, for, for those of you that cannot see this bottle on the table, this is a 63.5% ABV LE. It is the 65th row on the Rickhouse Floor 6 Q. It is an OESV that is nine years, three months old, and it is from Buddy's Liquors in London, Kentucky. Dan was a part of this pick. We did not know this. We just kind of, Zeke brought the bottle, and Dan said, oh, I remember that one. Uh, This... See, I must. Uh, I, I, alcohol doesn't bother me apparently, <laughs> because this is to me. This is just a caramel bomb. It's just uh, these OESVs were so good, and and this to me is again getting back to barrel variation. Uh, the the honey barrel. There are certain barrels that just have more natural sugar in them. And some of the research that I've gotten, I've got a presentation from Independent Stave where. On one page of it, they list the the different components of a tree in percentage wise, and the the one that stood out to me is a tree can vary in the amount of tannin it has from 0.8 percent all the way up to 10 percent composition tannin of that tree. To me, it's pretty simple. The higher the tannins, the more tannic that barrel is going to be. The drier that barrel is going to be. So you you get those kind of variations in the wood, and I need to study that more because I need to look at the, the other some other percentages there of the different components of of what that oak tree is I made think we of. I just need to you know find somebody that's an in and, and take the time to go in there and cherry pick the best staves and make sure the whole barrel's composed. Of that I mean yeah. we're not going to have much of a yield like a barrel a week. But it's going to be some damn good juice. Yeah, you'd be paying a thousand dollars a barrel for it too. Just, you know, it's just it's impossible. And basically, what happens is you're going to get these barrel variations, but the vast majority of barrels are going to be. It's going to average itself out in terms of those kind of flavors. I liked Jack's Fremont. Just did a pick, and and they're one of our stores that. That uh, we really like. They're not local, but great, great guys. And uh, Mike over there, everybody, check out Mike and check out Jack's Fremont. But they they posted a picture of the staves. They basically cut through the barrel. Yeah, and you could see how deep deep it in this. Yeah, the red layer. It yeah. was just so crazy because <clears throat> you could see in some areas of the barrel it gets super deep. In some areas, it doesn't get as deep. And there's even another layer that we could go down to say, why does it go so deep in some parts of the barrel? Why does it not go deep in other parts of the barrel? Again, bourbon is a rabbit hole. <laughs> well, again, is it an open grain? Is it tight grain? If it's an open grain stave, it's going to go in deeper. But the other thing you've, you've got to understand about the charring process is is what they call the red layer. So when you when you char that barrel, you'll get some discoloration into the stave just from the heat. 
God, this is good. I agree with you. No, this <laughs> Zeke, how did you get this bottle and why didn't I get one? So I happen to see it on the internet somewhere on one of the groups. I see it says London, Kentucky, my boy Glenn. I remember we were talking one day. He grew up and he's from London, Kentucky. So I just shoot him a message like, hey, man, you think one of your family members can go by and grab this for me? He just laughs and says, well, you think they're not sold out by now? And I was like, I don't know. I just saw a picture of it. That's the end of the conversation. It just showed up in the mail about a month later. Didn't even tell me he got it or sent it to me. It's the craziest thing about it is the news. You gotta get some good friends like that, John. I know. Well, I am (laughs) friends with Glenn. I just didn't reach out to him. But the uh, the nose is super floral. See how Zeke's my friend too, by the way. Like he share it with you. By by no means does he say, "Hey, I'm getting one of these. Do you want one?" I just said I didn't know I was getting it. I know I'm just messing, <laughs> but the nose is so floral. But you're right; the taste is so just caramel thick, caramel bomb. And again, I, alcohol doesn't bother me apparently, because I, I just look. I, I pick it up more as spice. There's a little spicy bur- caramel. Yeah, there's there, there's well, a little burn, burn. I think to when it, things are done right, and you know your grains are right, proof doesn't by any means indicate heat factor quote unquote there's plenty of things that are 90 to 100 proof especially some stuff in tennessee that comes off really hot to the palate and i, I think that's kind of a different subject with the misnomer folks will give you as being a, a proof chaser i don't tell her about i'm not a proof chaser i just want to know what it was when it exited the barrel so i know how much it's been diluted because Dilution to me equals dilution of flavor. Yeah, absolutely. It could be 109 or even less than 100, but if that's where it came out at, that's where I want to have it because no one's tinkered or you know, not adultered, but no one's diminished the flavor return there. One of the things that I like to do with our, with our regular single barrel and a regular small batch is when I'm out doing public tastings, uh, 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 I like people to taste both of those side by side and I always give them the single barrel first. And I never tell them it, it, what the proof is. Of course, people were getting so well known, most people know, but I always give them the, the single barrel first. And then invariably, somebody's going to say, and then I give them the small batch, and then they'll invariably say, well, I like the single barrel better because it's smoother than that small batch. So then I'll tell them, they say, well, it's, that's interesting. The single barrel's 100 proof. The small batch is only 90. And they're, they're typically surprised by it. And basically all I'm trying to, to, to show is that what they're picking up on the small batch is that, that long, spicy finish in the back. And people are picking that up people pick that up as alcohol and it's not alcohol that's just the finish from that yeast strain and the only point to the whole thing is is that heat is not necessarily or exclusively a function of of alcohol it can be it can be the yeast strain in in that k yeast strain example it it can be a, a barrel that's got too much tannin the bourbon is a little drier a little too much tannin you get that dry bitter finish people will pick that up as alcohol so heat is 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 not always about the alcohol is the only point it's just the the, the poor scapegoat at this point absolutely well people just uh, automatically assume and again when i saw the the tier on this barrel tier six i knew it was high I knew it was old. I figured it's 122, 23, somewhere in there. And the interesting thing about that pick, they brought their wine manager with them, a young lady, and she wasn't a bourbon drinker. And this is the one she liked the best. 
the highest proof, 127 proof. We didn't know it at the time. We just knew it was over 120. But she gravitated to that, and she's not a, was not an experienced bourbon drinker. That's the one she picked. It's the one I picked. I just really, really, really like this. How, how many of the guys were turned off by it, though? You know, it, 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 it was... Um, it wasn't unanimous, but but that was the clear choice out of all the ones we we had. I, th- I just well, love this. It, it's funny there. There's certain characteristics of this one. It's the spicy caramel. That's and it's not an off-putting spice, but you know it's just the right amount of spice. It is creamy, but then all of a sudden you're like, oh my my mouth kind of tingles at the same time, and it's it's nice. almost uh, cinnamon. Uh, yeah, red, red hot cinnamon kind of spicy burn, and a little bit of that's got to be some of that's definitely the alcohol. But there's so much sugar to this. There's so much sweetness and caramel to this. It masks the alcohol, and that's the, the key thing about a honey barrel. Sugar will mask a lot of flaws in in, in, in bourbon, and again, that's why. The cocktail culture became so big in the 20s it is because there's a lot of bad whiskey out there, <laughs> to be quite honest. And, you know, it was just so you got to doctor it up uh, to, to make it drinkable. You know, that was just part and parcel of what was going on. Uh, you know, there's a great book. Uh, there are a couple of books that I really like, and one of them is uh, The Bronfman's. The Rise and Fall of the House of Seagram. It's out of print. You can get a copy on on, uh, Amazon, a a used copy for less than five bucks. It chronicles the the Bronfman family history from when they came over from Russia in the late 1880s and settled on the Canadian frontier. So they were hotel people. So Sam Bronfman, who really made the, the, was the driving force within the company, is a 16-year-old. He was the middle of the five brothers, and he's buying badly made whiskey from these backwoods distillers, and he's blending it up so to make it drinkable. He's putting blending sherry in it. He's putting sweet sherry in it. You put enough sugar in anything, you can make it taste good. <laughs> and and to be quite honest, that's what Whiskey Row in Louisville was all about. They're most of those companies, if you if you read, um, and this is just the way it was, if you you know Forrester, the Browns were buying. They had a distillery, but they're also buying whiskey from other people. You could, if you, there's a great book called Last Call. These are the two great books. Last Calls on Prohibition, and it chronicles what was going on in Whiskey Row at the turn of the century. So you could go down there and walk into uh, the supplier and say, hey, I need some scotch. Well, I think we can get it mixed up for you here pretty quick. <laughs> it, it, that's, it, was, it, was, you know, it was the reason Colonel Taylor wanted the Bottled in Bond Act. So, well, how do you, make, how do you get scotch out of Kentucky? Well, do you, you get some coffee grounds and tea, tea grounds and throw it in there and bitter it up. And that, the, <laughs> the prune juice, I mean, the stuff that they put in there to darken it up and, and, and to give it a little more bitter finish is crazy. But that, that, those are the two of the best books because it gives you a, a basis and a history of, of how much prohibition – 
change the liquor industry. It's just f f fascinating. I'm a history buff. I, so. I got it up on Amazon right now. Oh, Last Call, yeah. yeah. And and the other one is the Bronfmans. The B R O N F M A N. That's like Bronfmans. <clears throat> Bronfmans. Well, we've heard the 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 uh, I guess the the Distillers Bible or the two blue books that the Seagrams did when they did their studies back, I think, in the '70s or '80s. That I guess led to a lot of uh, oh. much more knowledge and, and things. Well, you know, Seagram spent more money on research and development than everybody else combined. And those, and you can go to used bookstores, or at least Larry Rice found one at a, at a bookstore, an old Seagram's distilling manual. And it's about the size of, if you've ever seen Michael Jackson's Guide to Single Malt Scotches, it's about this wide. It's about that tall. So it's this little, nice little compact book. I've seen Jim Rutledge's. And so they started documenting everything. And they were n notorious for, for scientific research. Uh, they had a fellow that worked at 7th Street. That was their main R&D plant. That all he did was work in yeast strains. He would grow... He would grow yeast, and he would look at them. He would let them mutate, and he would uh, look at it under the microscope. If he liked what he saw, he wanted uniform cell sizes. If he liked what he saw under the microscope, he had a small still. He could run a batch of bourbon or, or whiskey with it. If he liked the whiskey, he kept the yeast strain. He developed over 3,000 yeast strains. Sheesh only kept about 300 of them. So at the time Seagram's went out of business, they had over 300 proprietary yeast strains in their library. So it's, uh, you know, there was one instance in that distilling manual where they were distilling vodka, I think, actually, and they were starting to get some off notes, off flavors, and they were they didn't understand why. So... They shut the still down. They went in and started looking into the still, and the grain, the spent mash, was starting to collect on a plate and not f fall through. So it was essentially just kind of rotting there. <laughs> so there's the little detail, minutia, uh, the attention to the minutia. Uh, I'll, I'll give you another example. Again, got this from Rutledge. We were had the USBG in. This is six, seven years ago national uh, people for for president dave nepov and some other people in to do a tour of the distillery and i was with rutledge and one of them stopped rutledge and asked him i said jim how much uh, how much back set do you use well that's of course it, hopefully everybody knows that's part of the, the sour mash process you take percentage of the the spent grain from the previous distillation and you add it back into the fermenters to raise uh, the acidity to prevent bacterial infection so it's a minute you've got to do a minimum of 25 percent to be called sour mash if if i remember correctly some people just do 50 percent well rutledge hesitated and i said i thought okay this is going to be interesting <laughs> he said, well, it depends. The guy said, uh, well, it depends on what? <clears throat> well, it depends on what the pH is of that particular fermenter. <laughs> because every grain source is different. You know, the, even the water can change a little bit. But 
So we want to make sure, so we add enough backset to make sure that the pH is between 4.7 and 5.2. That's just one little bit of minutia of consistency from, from batch to batch. Mm-hmm. That I heard him say it one time, I never heard him say it again. There, there's all of those little details. Uh, the last thing I got from him, uh, most people have no idea what base loss is. Okay, you think about it, you've got a column still, you're putting in this alcohol-laden mash. You've got to set the pressures right. And again, I, I know enough to be stupid. I freely, I freely admit that. We feel you. you know a lot more than, than to be stupid. <laughs> we're, we're just stupid. We, we didn't have to know anything. I feel like it. I'm being taken to school <laughs> yeah. tonight. Like, this is great. Well, if you don't have the pressure set correctly, you know, alcohol can go out the bottom of the still. So you've got to have a certain, and that's base loss. So you've got to control the the amount of alcohol you're losing out of the bottom of the still. So I asked Rutledge about it. This is just last week. So he was telling me it, it's uh, akin to making a cut in a column still. I know that sounds very strange, but that's the way I put it to him. And he said, well, basically you're right. But base loss, he was saying, well, I'm on it between 0.1% and 0.12%, somewhere around there. So essentially a tenth of a percent. It <laughs> doesn't sound like much variation. It doesn't sound like much, but it, but uh, he, he feels like that that bad flavors go out at the bottom of the still with that. And if you, if you do less than that, you get some bad flavors in your whiskey. So, so you wouldn't be making cuts like... You wouldn't be making the heads and the tails no. and, and... Well, here's the thing. We do. Here's what you got to understand. When you start that still up, we want that the, the alcohol coming off the top of that still to be about 138 to 140 proof. So as you start that still up at the start of the week, it's not at 138. So you might make your cuts at the beginning of the week, at the end of the week, but you're not going to make it during the week. Absolutely. That's the difference, except for the base loss. And that's one-tenth of one percent he wants to go out the bottom. That is crazy. Well, that's just one bit of minutia, and there, there are a lot of people that, don't, that are distilling that don't have that instrument in the bottom of the still to let them know what the base loss is. I also just want to mention that I bought both of those books while we were sitting here doing the podcast. I can't wait for them to come. Glad you were paying attention. I was definitely paying attention. <laughs> I, I, you're going to learn a lot of new stuff when you're editing this one. I know. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was paying attention. So 30 minutes ago, we were trying to talk about age. Okay. And, and we were just starting to talk about age, and we went on a 30-minute okay. we tangent. Now... One of the things that, that I have heard is that, you know, Rutledge had always said that, you know, eight years was his target. <clears throat> there are some people that are chasing four roses that are over 10 years. And those older ones, I think there was one that came out in town that was a 13-year-old that people went crazy over. But Rutledge had always said that, you know, hey, my sweet spot is eight to nine years. And, and what's your take on that? I mean, knowing 
everything you just said and how many different rabbit holes there could be in whiskey and, and Four Roses in particular, is there a sweet spot in age? I think if you talk to, typically it's six to nine. Most bourbon is going to max out at six to nine years of age because of the barrels. If that barrel is, once, once the sugar has been depleted from that barrel, all it starts doing is it starts becoming, it starts picking up more tannin. So, so the vast majority of bourbon, it's six to nine years of age, it, it's not going to get any better. So the percentage of barrels that are older than that that get better is a very, very small percentage. And it's got a lot to do with the barrel, how much sugar, how much caramelized sugar is in that barrel. Is it a honey barrel? As long as, it's, as, long as there's sugar in that barrel, it's going to continue to get better. Rutledge always did a bell curve, and he, he would have the years along the, uh, along the base, and, and the quality level would go up. And then it kind of levels out. And then once the sugar is depleted from that barrel, it's just, it starts becoming way, way too woody. Which so, is interesting. I mean, we, we interviewed Greg Metz, formerly of MGP, now mm -hmm. of Old Elk. And we were talking about, you know, just MGP. And the interesting thing about MGP is that because it is a cement building, it's not like a typical rickhouse where it's wood and, and you're going to have wind passed through. It actually loses proof while it ages well, in that here, building. Well, and then here's and, and the reason is concrete and brick is cooler. Yeah, absolutely. So the cooler it is, again, the water has not is not going to evaporate. The alcohol is going to evaporate. So absolutely. The cooler the warehouses are, the more it's going to lose alcohol. It's going to lose proof. But Absolutely. Zeke and I have always said MGP, our sweet spot for MGP is 8 to 11 years. And then it depends on where it's aged, when it's pulled from Indiana. There are some, I mean, Traverse City in Michigan has some great, great, great older MGP. They have some great MGP in general. They have some of their great own distillate. No lie, put Traverse City on your watch list. They're one of the ones that I, I'm really looking forward to lately. But if it goes from MGP, if it goes from Indiana, and say it ages 14 years in Michigan, it's cooler in Michigan, and the, the winters are cooler, and so you might have a mellower 14 years. Absolutely. You're not, it's not under as much heat. So it's all about how much heat that barrel is under and how much that alcohol is expanding into the barrel. Absolutely. So it, the cooler it is, it, it, it's not going to expand as much. It's going to hang around that char layer. It's just not going to drive as deep into the barrel. Absolutely. The cooler, those brick warehouses, those stone and brick warehouses, are cooler uh, as opposed to our tin warehouses. So that makes a difference. Absolutely. It's, it's all about the it's all about the temperature. Absolutely. Well, I can see the, the barrel concept, too. I mean, I remember specifically having an OBSKs, a 15-year and a 16-year. 15-year was literally one of the best foros I've ever had. The 16 was hard pass. Who poured me that one kind well, of thing? Was, again, in the, in the thing I'll bring up. That 15-year, probably a honey barrel, 
that 16 year old could have been in a barrel that didn't that was had much more tannic content in the stave so mm-hmm. it's the barrel the barrel variation is really mind-boggling and again that's going to average out over 400,000 barrels particularly when you're you're mingling when you're when you're blending this stuff together but it really is all about it's just not it's well, not a straightforward process at all and it would you know seem to me i guess because there's no way to to know what barrels are, are honey and which ones aren't i mean there's no way you can until drill you it taste and, them and, and taste absolutely so if you've got that many barrels can't be employing that many tasters but i'll go ahead and put my hand up now you know if you need somebody <laughs> a day or two a week just to mingle through and, and let you know what i think about a row or two. and i will come up I mean, <laughs> well, it sounds like there's a lack of tasting going well on. here's here's what happens here here is the evaluation process so we started at four years of age so a batch is about 200 barrels from what i've been told so at four years of age, we will start tasting that batch, but we won't taste every barrel. We'll only taste certain barrels to different warehouses, different tiers. Batch synonymous with Well, no, right? I mean, this is, yeah. this is something I'm used to, especially with IT. And Zeke, you probably have this in, in some blind studies when it comes to pharmacy and drugs. But and you're going to do a batch testing. So you might test... Five from here, five from there, five from there. Exactly. You're not going to test everything. You do enough that... You give you a general idea. Yeah. So here's what happens. So at about, I think it's at eight or nine years of age, then we'll taste everything. Now what happens is this. Some of those barrels are ready. Some of them are a little past ready. So, you know, we've had people come in for barrel selections that have gone back and looked at us dumping barrels for a yellow label that saw a 16-year-old OBSO going into yellow label. Well, that once it starts going downhill, it goes down very rapidly. So, you know, they might have tasted a year before and it was fine, but now it's, uh, it's too woody. Had it's, a hot summer, didn't do good. It's not going to, you know, and a lot of times there's just not enough it's too woody for the single barrel program for our flavor profiles. So you dump it into yellow label and, and, and uh, or 80 proof. So the youngest whiskey there is about five and a half years old. So I, I, again, I draw the analogy of uh, blended scotch here. You know, almost every blended scotch has a little bit of Laphroaig in it. <laughs> you know, a little bit of Laphroaig goes a long way. So, and I view those older barrels that we put into Yellow Label. That's why there's a little more depth of flavor to that. So it's not just straight five-and-a-half-year-old bourbon. It's got some much older stuff in it. And a lot of the Freud to people like Zeke tastes like a Band-Aid. Oh, I think that's any, being kind as any, far as any, I'm concerned. Any, any scotch is not up my alley. No, it, it, Zeke, I mean, I got to tell you this over and over. It depends on what part of Scotland it's coming from. If it's a Highland, a Lowland, a Spaceside, an sure, Isla. This is a bourbon show. I know, but an <laughs> Isla, it's the Isla that have all the peat that you yeah. hate. You could have a Highland, like a McAllen or a Balvini. Like Abelauer, Balvinis are just marvelous. Yeah. You'd be fine. <laughs> sherry, you want sherry finish? No. 
No, Zeke doesn't love the wine finish. But I will tell you yeah. that for 80 proof, the yellow label, and I know you get slapped on the hand if you call it the yellow label. <laughs> That's what I was laughing part. about. <laughs> and the yellow label is for $17, and it's 80 proof. It has more flavor than some things that have over 100 proof. And, and, and again, the reason is we put in a lot of, a lot of older stuff. And you don't know. I mean, you it, could realize you could have a 16-year OBSO in there. Well, you know, and hopefully, honestly, like as insignificant as it is, the yellow label, quote unquote, it's one of those things you just don't want to go away. Like, hey, man, you get that yellow label? And inevitably, there'll be a time when somebody's like, it's not yellow, dumbass. Like, why do you call it yellow label? Well, come here. Let me it's tell you a story. <laughs> do, you have, do you have the nude label? I mean, that's kind of what it is. It's a nude label right now. It's, it's a tan. Do you have the beige label? <laughs> I mean,. <laughs> But it's one of those things that I will tell you that is something that I always have in the cabinet. And it's one of those ones that, say, I'm working late or if I'm you know, editing, I'm doing something for the day job and I'm working late. It's 80 proof. I know I can have a couple of those. I'm going to be okay. I'm, I'm well, that's why I brought it up here. Was you know to, so I could lighten up, but I haven't lightened up very much. Well, I'll tell Apologies. you, we had the funny thing is 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 we had Mister Young on the show uh, about a year and a half ago, and we were interviewing him, and we were going through the going through all of them, and we we said, you know, Al, I got to tell you, the yellow label is one of our favorite things ever. Like it really is one of those. It, it is truly undervalued in in the world of bourbon. And then you get the small batch, and he goes, well, you know, the small batch is great for Manhattan. <laughs> <laughs> now, I think with this small batch select, if you're not Zeke and you don't like, hate the F, I really like the small batch select. Well, that's what's funny to me is I've, I've got Fs, and granted, a lot of last year's Fs, I wasn't big on. I thought they were very subtle, and all I really picked up was a lot of heavy mint. But it was definitely just that run. Other Fs, not so much. And even some of the current ones coming out now. I was trying to see. I don't know if we have one, but that newest run, I think, of OBSF, it's just off-profile as can be. Those have been really fun to get into. But, you know, like you said, until you mingle those yeasts together and see what's going to happen in a finished product, I think there's definitely some type of... Um, it's not build up or synergy, but you, you know they're, they're mingling for <laughs> lack of better words, and that's what yields to the I think more pronounced because it's just right at the back, just heavy heavy the, bite. The, I, I, I see that I really do. Uh, I, I don't I, hate it though. That's I mean I guess that's just I didn't say I, I hated it. It's, it's just hard to really get into it because yeah. I smell it's it. So it's so different. Yeah, it hits the front of my palate. I really enjoy it, and then right as I go to you know wash it out it just pucker, I get that puckers and draws me up see the thing is i get that mintiness on the front of it and and i it's something that dan was talking about when we were beginning this whole thing is he said i want to steal your story from you but you were tasting with rutledge and it was one of the things about how you got a oh. certain thing at a certain time and you need to taste all the way through yeah I think the thing with this small batch select for me is I get that mint on the front, 
and it's pleasing to me. And so I don't think about anything else other than the fact that, hey, I like this, and that's it. When I first have tasted this several times, when we had the had the grand opening uh, of the distillery or in the release party for this uh, back here a month or so ago, it was a little drier. I don't know. We had just bottled it. I don't know if, if bourbon gets bottled sick like wine does, but... I didn't really know what to make of it, but it's much more caramel to me now. But it's still got. It's just deeper. It's there's a darkness to it that the so much more so than the regular small batch. It's just a heavier. You know, it's funny because John and I haven't you know had all of them or even probably even half of them by any means. But if you look at what. When folks give you, you know, advice or notes on each year's LE small batch, there's some, and I can't recollect which years, but you know, I've seen guys say like, "Oh no, that one, you drink it in a weekend, like it's just not as good when it sits." Uh, the one twenty, and the then you'll see some that guys is. say, "No, no, open that, come back, like just put it away and come back." It's like, "Oh, well, hold on, you said that one had to be gone in a weekend, but this one, so it's, they're they're very different." You know, I, I'll. I'll use the uh, the 2016 to me was was not my favorite, and that was Brent's first effort. And the thing about that, the, I'm trying to think. There was it was oh, so it had a lot of fruit up front, and it, and it had a 14 or 16 year old OESK, if I remember correctly. So it never the 2016 never quite married up to me. You got this big fruit, and then this big wood bomb at the bottom, at the end. It just never seemed to marry up. The 2018, on the other hand, I think that's is spectacular. But that was great out of the bottle. And what I was going to say is the Al Young is a case in point with what you're talking about, Zeke. When I opened up the Al Young, that had a 23-year-old in it. It finished with a, a a dry woody finish to me, just straight out of the bottle. Then wait fifteen minutes. Well, or an hour. Or you know Lauren Simpson. Of course we know. <laughs> and Lauren has his experiments where he oh, will let things go for. You know he's like, I tasted this at five minutes, and then I waited five minutes more, and then I waited five minutes more. And- well, he had a bottle of that. It is. Uh, this is sometime in the past year, year or so that he drank it down to, to I don't know maybe two thirds, and he let it sit for two, two, three, four weeks. And I had mentioned to him that I thought it was woody. He said, "Well, uh, let's taste it," and it, it turned into a caramel bomb. Just that little air, it really blew off. And it just really turned into this big round sugar daddy. Jason Brauner of uh, Bourbon's Bistro in Louisville is death on letting air get to it. Uh, and he, he, you know, we've had a tasting or two. He's, he's told us to go ahead and pour that stuff an hour or so before we get there. Want it to open up. It really makes a difference. It, it really does. It's funny. I. I am a firm believer. I mean, Zeke and I picked Al Young as our bourbon of the year in 2017. And the reason being is because it is so fluid. 
and because it doesn't stay the same. Yeah. I think for for people that have been in the game for so long and not saying that Zeke and I are players in the game, but you know, it's like when when you've been drinking bourbon for a while, I can't drink the same thing over and over. Yeah. I know what certain things are going to be when I drink them. And I liked Al Young because it was one of those things where I'm like, you have one sip and then you wait an hour and then you have another sip and you go, Zeke, did you know it has this now? And it changes. It really does. And for the, the bourbon fan that knows what a heaven Hill is going to taste like, knows what a, an old Fitz is going to taste like, or a McKenna, even though it's a single barrel, what they normally taste like, or it was that Al Young that shit. It was a shapeshifter. Yeah, absolutely. That's the thing. This small batch select does a little bit of it for me. How long has this bottle been open? Uh, I, three I weeks? went back three weeks. Yeah, three Jesus. Weeks. This is just. It's different. It's different. Absolutely. It's not three, as... four weeks. No more than four. Did you take... Because you took a, a thing from the media sample. Did you take a sip from my bottle that's no, been open? I'll, I'll give it a whirl and I get me in the... Try that now. Holy crap. And I've got a bottle sitting there. You want to open up a fresh one? Oh, we don't even need to... At this point, we can open <laughs> it up. We, we have enough open on the table. That's just really... I don't get the that dark... But I really, really, really really enjoy... Because you have that... The media sample is there that's pretty much a fresh crack. I hadn't opened that before tonight. I had it and got the same experience that I had from previous tastings of the other ones. Of this? Mm Mm-hmm. That's my favorite of Brent's, the 2018. Uh, But that small batch selected $65. Oh, no. Oh, this? this, Not the LA we had earlier. Okay. But I'm saying... For $65 to have that small batch select that almost kind of varies as much as a limited edition small batch would, I'm okay with that. I think that is a great addition to your lineup. Yeah, I'm getting a little bit of the mint on the finish now that I think about it. I'm, 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 I mean, I get that yeah. mint, but the mint, I don't the mint's still there, but it doesn't, it doesn't. It's not overpowering. I mean, it almost like, gives, the fresh crack, I mean, literally almost gave me what felt like an anaphylactic reaction where my throat just tightened up. Like, uh, I understand it. I really do. Uh, th- this, this, this has been open three weeks. This is a classic example of letting the air get to something. This is just really. But I think there's much no more. other brand that this happens to other than Four Roses where it's like, you know, somebody gets something and, and somebody loves it and they get it. They open it on the first crack, and it's like, "Hey, wait, just wait, just take a sip of it, let it open." Well, at least not for hyper-aged stuff. I think that's the difference with the blends and you know any of your single barrels that are you know significantly aged. You definitely see those open up as well. But I think there's so much more chemically going on that most of us don't think about, and even if we did think about it, we still can't really put the pieces. Well, we tried to put the pieces together tonight, but it went. Pretty crazy. Oh man, that's really this. That's a classic example of, of of what I was talking about with the Al Young. This uh, I agree. This is just I've not wrapped my head completely around this yet because the first time I tasted it, 
It was really kind of dry and woody. And I don't know, we had just bottled it. I get like thick caramel. Absolutely. Up front right now, this is just... Well, that's what threw me for such a loop on it, especially because when I first had it, whatever was blooming, you know, a month or so ago, wiped out the sinuses hard. So I really just attributed it to, the, all right, everything up here is wrecked. I really shouldn't give an opinion on anything right now. And then even as I revisited a time or two, the nose was amazing. And I tend to lead by my nose. I'm... I'm pretty good there and I just kept thinking like what am I not missing what, what's going on here this thing just knows is really good it first starts out good and then all of a sudden just does some 180 to me that I can't understand or yeah. describe and that's just really alright Dan this is this is pretty amazing I can't let you go before we get a good Dan Gardner story. We always have a good Dan story. <laughs> Dan, leave us with a story. Oh, man. We've told the best one. Now it's my or, or, or just some words of wisdom for everybody. J- J- Jimmy Russell. No, you have better stories than that. I mean, oh. you have Julian Van Winkle stories. You have all sorts of stories. Oh, gosh. Uh, we'll, save, we'll save that one. That, that, that's an interesting... You are going to come oh, on okay, again. Okay, oh, I, I tell you what, I will tell you this one. I will tell you the Van Winkle story. So, Julian is such... Uh, uh, we're very lucky in our industry that the vast majority of people, the family members, are just really, really good people. And I, and I will put Julian at the top of that list. So... In 1988, he calls me up and says, Dan, I've got some of the last whiskey that my dad distilled from 1972, right before he sold the distillery. So we had two versions of it, a 14-year-old and a 16-year-old, and it was his first family reserve, if memory serves. So... You know, do you want any of it? Well, sure, Julian. We, you know, we had some stores. Uh, Ken Lewis, who owns New Ref Distillery, uh, uh, party source up in northern Kentucky, had did several stores in Louisville, uh, always had his full line. So, I'll, uh, Julian, I'll take 10 cases of each. Had some restaurant distribution. So, about a month later, he calls me up and says, Dan, uh, how much of that uh, family reserve do you have left? Looked it up in the computer. We had them at that point. <laughs> <laughs> was it a black green or white? It was that thing that the it green, was, yeah. It was C dot dot. Yeah. yeah. I, I really had to think, like, oh man, what did the computer look like when I was a little kid? So it was the Apple IIe. It was playing Oregon Trail to find right. it. So I look it up when we've got less than a case each, and I said, yeah, Julian, we, we don't have very much left. I said, and I could tell by the tone of his voice that something wasn't quite right. And I said, he was pissed he sold it to you. Well, no, no. What happened was, is you know, it was very different back then. Uh, it, was, it was not what it is now, uh, Van Winkle. So I said, you've got less than a case each. I said, Julian, is something wrong? He said, well, 
not really. If that's all you got left, he said, do you apparently have a, uh, some, uh, a bottle uh, of one of them at uh, Cafe Metro? He said, Bill Samuels was in there last night. He wasn't real happy about that red wax seal I used. <laughs> Julian tells me the story about the red wax seal. Now, I'm going to tell you right now, this is my recollection. Julian might have a different recollection. <laughs> so, so the Samuels family never filed for a trademark for the red wax seal. So how they laid claim to the, to the red wax was through their advertising. And if you saw a billboard in Louisville, and that didn't change, that only changed up until... Uh, Beam bought it, but you would never see Maker's Mark on a billboard. It was always just the red wax. So I kept, I bought a case of the 14-year-old. I like the 14-year-old a little better. The 16-year-old, in, in what I remember saying about it was cognac-like. It was very, it was good, but I, 14-year-old was a little more bourbon. Yeah. I probably never opened a bottle of it, Okay. I get down to three bottles, so Bourbon's Bistro opens up. This is 12 years ago. I give them a bottle. They have their fifth-year anniversary. I give them another bottle. Bill Samuels <laughs> comes in and says, what's up with the red wax? <laughs> well, no, no, nothing about that. So I've got one bottle of this stuff left. So I go to work for Four Roses, and I meet a guy from... Knoxville, this is a long story to end with. Tim Bible, he's a dentist in Knoxville, and I meet him through a store over there, and he finds out that I've uh, uh, know Julian, and, and he comes up every year with some buddies to, to the races in November. He said, well, you know Julian? I said, yeah. He said, well, could you set lunch up for us? I've got a bunch of, I've got some bottles I'd like him to sign. Well, sure. So I called Julian up. He said, yeah, Dan, no, no problem. I said, Julian, well, I want to thank you. This is a good friend of mine. He said, I'm going to bring a bottle of that 14-year-old family reserve from late 80s for you, you showing up. I really appreciate it. So it was just kind of deathly silence there for about five seconds. You're, you're talking about that red wax stuff? I said, yeah. He said, that's real good bourbon. I said, well, yeah, I just appreciate you, you showing up. I know you're busy. He said, well, if you bring that, I'll bring a bottle of 23-year-old to you and give it to you. I said, okay. Again, this is 10 years ago. I'm not realizing what's going on. So bottom line, Tim's coming in. Julian's got to cancel out. So I call Tim up and tell him Julian had to cancel. And, and I tell, proceed to tell Tim what I was going to do. And it was pretty much the same reaction from him. He said, are you talking about the red wax stuff from late 80s? <laughs> and I said, yeah. He said, Dan, I saw a bottle go on eBay, and this is 10 years ago. I saw a bottle go on eBay uh, for $1,200. Uh-oh. <laughs> I, I might have to rethink this. Well, it, get, it gets better or worse depending on you. So this is in November. So I'm thinking about this, and I've got it on my wine rack down in my basement. And 
One, if you only kept it until now. Well, I, 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 what do I do with this? Twelve hundred. I look. I like good whiskey, but twelve hundred dollars, baby. Oh Especially man! Especially back then. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Gas was a, was under a dollar <laughs> at that point. So, it's probably in May, May or June. I said, well, finally, I get off my dead rear end and go down there. I better go down and check on that bottle. I go down there and what's gone? I knew it was in the top right hand corner of my wine rack. Then I've got a buffet upstairs with a bunch of stuff in it too. So go up there, it's not there. Well, where did that damn bottle go? Light bulb goes off in my head. My son had moved, gotten graduated from college and moved back in. So he's down in the basement. He's got a bedroom in the basement, right next to the room where my wine rack is. So I go down. Alex, did uh, did you happen to uh, get that bottle of Van Winkle bourbon out of the wine rack? <laughs> uh, yeah. So okay. Did uh, did you drink it? Uh, yeah. Said, was it good? Went great with that two liter of Coke. That's exactly. He said, yeah. I said, well, um, it it should have been because a friend of mine just told me he saw a bottle sell on eBay when they could still do that for $1,200. So the only joy I got out of that bottle, that last bottle of 14-year-old Van Winkle Reserve with the red wax seal was seeing the color drain from my son's face. (laughs) So, (laughs) Wow. So that's, that's that's about the best story I got I'm outside of Jimmy Russell. So, on that note, I just want to thank you for coming. If it's not transparent enough, we love everything Four Roses is doing, and we can't wait to see what they do in the future. Thank you, Dan. You are one of the the best parts of Bourbon. We always love when you're here. We always love spending time with you. I, I mean, you're one of our favorite people. You know that. Well, I appreciate it. I really do. The only sad thing is we're going to have to save Tree 50 for next time. I know. My kind, we are terribly sorry we didn't have time to get you. I mean, we waited around for an hour and a half for you to show up, and you never made it. So, Mike, we will try to fit you in next show. Cheers. <laughs> Dan, anything you want to say before you leave? No, just thank you very much for having me. and. Uh... Maybe uh, next time I come down, we'll get into a little history. So I, I can't <laughs> wait. Just a little bit. Just a little bit. And, a little and history and a lot of bourbon. <laughs> go ahead and find Four Roses bourbon if you haven't already. Go taste something that they have. You know you're going to like something. There's 10 recipes. There is the small batch. There is the yellow label or the beige label at this point. There, there's so many things that Four Roses has. They have a little bit for everyone. Go ahead and find them. Find us on your favorite podcast provider. Please leave us an open and honest review, just like we openly and honestly review whiskey. Find us on Facebook at Dad's Drinking Bourbon, Twitter at Bourbon Dads, Instagram at Dad's Drinking Bourbon. Zeke, where else can the folks find us? Good old Nashville, Tennessee, and I'll close out by saying I stand corrected on this small batch select. Apparently about a four weeks of air does a number on it. Dan and I both been looking at each other as we as we tasted this the final pour of like this is not what the hell I it's thought just, it was. Just turned into a caramel bomb. It really has. Michael Hines, we're sorry we didn't get you on. We'll get you on next time. Cheers. Ciao. Later.